0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate Hopkins. Hello. Andrew Mason. Good morning. Eric Berry.
1: Howdy, howdy, howdy.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Igor Morozov. Hello. If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are, why you're famous. What you do for a living, all that stuff?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I'm a software engineer from Moscow. That's in Russia. I've been programming for like, well, for most of my life. I wanted to become a programmer since I was nine. So I kind of earned my first money when I was 14. But right now I'm a a professional software engineer at a small company called CleanRoot. Well, we match cleaners and people who want their apartments clean. And actually, I'm kind of enthusiastic about functional programming and Ruby and stuff like that.
0: So that's it, I guess. Very cool. Well, We brought you on today to talk about functional traits or functional aspects of Ruby. I think what you put in kind of our working title or topics was partial application currying, and other functional traits. And I'm not sure what if I know what either of those, well, I've seen currying before, but partial application, I'm not sure what you mean by that. But uh, before we dive into that, do you want to just talk a little bit about what functional programming is? Because I know we have some listeners who are just getting into programming or just getting into Ruby and don't really know the difference or haven't really jumped in yet to figure out what's object-oriented, what's functional, what's you know whatever procedural or whatever other paradigms exist within ruby well yeah it's actually still an
2: open question for me because i really can't figure out for myself what i mean when i say functional programming but to me it's actually designing my applications in a way that i treat everything as a data and the whole application is composed of transformations for that data so I have some kind of input, I process this data, and then I have an output. And that's practically it, I guess. And that's my way of looking at it. And I wonder,
0: what are the other options to see that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done some playing with Lisp and Scheme and some of these other ones that I, I guess are purely functional. And there's like some mathematical definition for that. And yeah, that's more or less how I think about it where, I mean, basically what you said, where you you drop stuff in and then, yeah, you get something out the other end and and, and that's all it is. They talk about immutability and lack of side effects and things like that. But that's all sort of incidental to the main idea, which is, yeah, you have a function, you put data in, you get transformed data out.
1: So one question is... Why pursue functional concepts in Ruby? I mean, kind of the elephant in the room is a lot of Rubyists have moved to other functional languages like Elixir. So what is it that has kind of kept you in the Ruby space doing functional programming?
2: Uh, well, I mean, actually, I haven't really seen Ruby without, without functional programming. My first job with, with Ruby was, well, on the purely functional, well, not really purely functional, but still... I learned about monads in Ruby on my second day with Ruby and on my job. And what really keeps me in Ruby are probably the products. Ruby is just my everyday tool. I know it, I use it. I wouldn't mind actually switching to someone else, but it's really the companies, the products, the people that keep me there. And I think it's the community and the tools. I mean, we have, Dryer B-gems, we have RAMR B-gems, and actually I really like a lot of those ideas, I really like those concepts, and I, I'm curious to see how they apply to the dynamic world, how to apply them in a dynamically typed languages where you have no kind of proof that your type is correct or anything like that it's just
0: interesting to experiment with languages you know I agree, but the the difference is is that if you're working in something like Elixir or Elm or some of these other ones, you don't really have the option of breaking the functional paradigm and if you're working in JavaScript or Ruby or some of these other ones, you do, and sometimes that gets people into trouble and so i I, I kind of echo what Nate's saying you know why why not just go all the way to functional and you know, just just pick a language that that forces you to stay in that paradigm?
2: I really don't have an answer to that question because, well, I think it's just a matter of preference. You know, well, I like Ruby. I'm wondering how it can evolve in some ways. I mean, it has a lot of object-oriented features. It's fully object-oriented, I think. But in my opinion, it's, it's can still apply a lot of functional concepts to Ruby. And I, I have some kind of feeling that a decent object-oriented design is not much different from functional. I've seen a lot of, I don't know, blog posts, books, and talks by people like Igor Bugayenko, where he talks about object-oriented design, like domain-driven design. And he actually wrote a book called i think it was elegant objects and i think in this book he he actually talks a lot about immutability and good object oriented design and it really feels like functional except it's not you know i'm still trying to discover why can't we focus on functional aspects in a language such as ruby i mean elixir is Dynamically type 2, and the only thing that prevents us from breaking any contracts is pattern matching. We can have that in Ruby too. So I don't know, why not? Yeah, I would, I would kind of answer my own question uh, as
1: well, Chuck, that uh, there's a lot of nuance with Ruby, right? Some of these other paradigms are very strict uh, where and rigid where you cannot violate the rules. But Ruby's approach to, to programming is... We're all consenting adults. Here's some sharp knives and go have fun. Right? <laughs> yeah. So when you need to violate the rules, you can, uh, and it can prove incredibly productive and helpful, but it also comes back and bites a lot of folks later, which is why I think they seek out uh, a little bit more rigid and strict ecosystem sometimes because they've you know, shot themselves in the foot.
3: Yeah. And I think really it depends on what you're building and where you're building it. So, If you are going to create something that has a lot of mutability, so it's going to be updating its values, the data is going to be changing, then I don't think functional programming is going to really be the correct fit right there. However, if you have some service objects or some external extractions from your core business logic that is not mutable, so it's immutable, and you just need to perform a bunch of calculations, then I think functional programming can really make sense in that extraction because, one, it's going to be a lot easier to test. You know, if you don't have mutations going on, if you're not having to track record changes uh, or object changes and stuff, it's going to be a lot easier to test. You give it a couple of inputs, and you have a desired output. You know, there's really no more... To it So, in some areas, it makes the code a lot more simple. Uh, not only simple to write, but also simple to document or consume because you're only going to have a few entry points, or not entry points. You're going to only have a few parameters that you're passing in, and you have a certain kind of desired output. So, from that sense, I think that it can make some complicated business logic that you have extracted out into some functional programming. You know, which it can be as simple as just a class that you initialize, and then you have a method that you call within there, and that method has some other methods that it consumes that's you know in a functional style.
4: I don't want to write functional programming. I want to write object-oriented programming. So also for that aspect too, I enjoy OOP a little bit more than I enjoy writing functional programs.
0: Yeah, well, Ruby definitely pushes you that way. It, it makes it a little bit more natural to write that, but some of the functional aspects of Ruby make it really, really convenient to do a lot of other things in Ruby. So uh, I see where you're coming from, but I, I think a, a lot of times, too, we don't realize that we're kind of getting the power of both areas when we work in Ruby. And yeah, some of the, some of the natural and powerful features are object-oriented, and some of them are functional.
2: Yeah, and you know, there's these debates on functional programming. I think it was in 2001. There's a paper with notes from the debates. It's called Objects Have Failed. It was a, I think it was a discussion about object-oriented programming and if it's good or bad. And I remember there was one particular point that really came close to my heart. It says that when we think about languages as purely object-oriented or when we push ourselves into a single paradigm, then we actually fail to embrace the diversity. We fail to embrace all the different aspects of working with data. We, when we push ourselves into a single paradigm, then we cannot really have nice things. And I want my program to be good. I mean, I, w- I want it to work. I want it to be maintainable. And to do so, I have to, like, I have to switch paradigms I have to pick the right paradigm, and I actually believe that Ruby is great for that because we can have everything we want, and it will always look natural, well, pretty natural. That's probably a good
1: segue into some of the dry uh, Ruby gems that that you've blogged about and and talked about and have used. That. Kind of bring some of that functional discipline into ruby can you talk about some of those gems and whether or
2: not you're using them in your day-to-day job actually i have never worked on a ruby application where there were no dry gems so usually i use three of those gems is dry types dry monads and dry validations i use dry types usually to design my domain so I like to think of types in terms of data that they possess, like uh, the data type. You know, there there are five definitions of a data type, and the one I like the most is a data type is a set of all possible values and a set of functions that you can apply to those function to those values. So when I think of my data in those terms, in terms of possible values, then I can actually design better data i can design my program flow to work with all the diversity of types with all the diversity of 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 options and you know actually people from f sharp or camel and similar similar languages actually shared some of those ideas that's i think that's where i got that idea initially so that's practically it about dry types it's just a set of constructors that well, dry types is just a set of constructors for various data types. You can compose them. You can have uh, those fancy algebraic data types. You can build custom constructors. You can chain them. You can define arrays of strings and stuff like that. So I use that. Then I use dry validation to, well, to validate the input and to coerce them to my some values and those values are actually described using dry types. So those things are tightly coupled, usually in my applications. And well, and then I process this logic, those data. And sometimes I actually use dry monads to express the computations, the results. And on my f- previous job, I had a lot of use cases for those monads. Usually, we have this result monad, which is actually just a wrapper. I mean, it has two possible options if your computation is a success or a failure. And then you can actually chain those calls together. You can It's like a railroad track. So I use them in my everyday job. And I think in my previous job, we actually used some fancier stuff, like we use the try monad that is just a wrapper around try, well, begin, rescue, accept, stuff like that. And we use a task monad, which is just a wrapper around, I think it's a promise from concurrent Ruby. So yeah, that's what I usually
0: use. Dry types, dry validation, and monads. So when you're saying dry types, is that a gem that falls under dry RBE, or I'm not sure if I completely follow when you're talking about dry types?
3: Yeah, dry types is a separate gem that is bundled under the dry ecosystem. I think they have quite a few of them out there now. Is there any other ones that you use that are notable?
2: Well, a lot of those libraries use each other as the building blocks, so... I use most of them, like, implicitly. So I use them, but I really, I'm not aware of them. On my previous job, I used a lot of dry gems, mostly because they were kind of developed there. So I was one of the early adopters, but it was just like, oh, he published a new gem. Oh, wow, cool. Let's see how it works. But no, no, not really, no. I only need those three. And well, dry types has a dry struct, which I use to define data structure sense, but those two usually come together. What are the types of projects you're using these on? Are you building, like
1: encapsulating business logic inside of libraries? Or are you running them on microservices inside of a
2: Rails app, Sinatra? What are, what are the other things you're coupling this technology with? Well, I have two stories. One was on my previous job where when I joined we were we had a typical race application and over the course of 2 years we practically replaced everything except controllers so we didn't have active record anymore so our all of our domain logic was well it was written using dry struct and ramrb and on my current job I usually use dry types to pay some logic, to describe some external API calls. And you know, those are monolithic Rails apps. All of those are monolithic. And I really don't have many use cases there. I just use them to describe the data that I want to always be correct. I really believe that my domain data must be correct at all steps of, well, of this huge domain process. So I just use it everywhere I can. But right now at my current job, we still have a lot of active records. So I can't really use that in a lot of times. So it's usually just the external API calls. So you had
1: mentioned it's a little bit like when you're modeling some of that domain logic, it's it's like a train. And I noticed that you had linked a few articles about railway-oriented programming.
2: Can you describe that? for everybody? Uh, Well, yeah, in programming in general, we usually have two possible outcomes for our program. Either everything goes well, or it doesn't. And sometimes, and we still need some, to figure out how to treat those failures. In Ruby, the typical way is to, there are several typical ways. The first one is exceptions, like we, When something goes wrong, we throw an exception, we rescue, we handle it, and then we move along. Sometimes people actually use the throw and catch in Ruby, but that's something I'm not going to do in production code. People in C and Unix like to return status codes to indicate if the execution was of a function or a program was a failure or not and so practically we have multiple ways of treating the results we can return a value to indicate if the execution was a success or a failure then we can throw an exception and that's practically it so railway oriented programming is an idea that we can use types to achieve two things the first one is to express the result so we have an operation like Let's say we want to change a person's name. Like they get married, they want to change their name, and they go in and ask us to change their name. And we have two options. Either we have an error, then it's a failure, or everything goes well. We change the name, we say it's a success, and give them the new data. All right. And that's one of the basic ideas for railway-oriented programming. We have two tracks, a successful one, and uh, I think and the one with the failure, you know. So then we have to compose them in some kind of fashion. And in Ruby and F-sharp and many other languages that embrace railway-oriented programming, we find some ways to compose this logic. Like we want to change the name. And if we change the name successfully, then we want to, let's say, update all of our legal documents on some other organizations. But we won't have to do that in case the first operation falls or or fails, you know. So we need some way to compose it. And I think railway-oriented programming is the notion that this whole process revolves around successes or failures. If it's successful, operations will go on and on and on until we reach the final point, until there's nothing left to do. And if at some point we have a failure, then this failure is expressed as a land, as some kind of object. Let's say it's just a simple wrapper. And if we have a failure, then we have two options. Either we can recover from it and go along our business, like... We can pretend it never happened. We can do whatever, or we can stop evaluating everything and just say, oh, well, okay, we have an error. Let's not do anything there. So there are practically two ideas. The first one is there are a successful and not so successful outcomes of, for any operations. And then you need a way to chain them. So I think
0: that's it.
1: I like the way that models in the sense that you narrow down the scope of what a particular business process is, or at least one of the operations, and then execute it, and it's either a pass or a fail, similar to a test uh, framework. And then you just chain them together, and either you continue down the happy path with all successes, or something might halt the chain that you've composed, So I actually wrote something similar about six or seven years ago called, uh, it was a Ruby gem called Ellington. And uh, railway away that, what is it, the F-sharp article about railway-oriented programming, I think came out shortly after, pretty close to the time that I had had done all that work. I called it Ellington. So if you look at GitHub and and just search for Ellington, you'll find a Ruby uh, project there. And it's named Ellington because it was modeled after uh, the A train, which was Duke Ellington's signature song. But the idea was you're on a subway train and every once in a while you would stop for a business operation. The passenger, which is like, like the little bag of state, would exit the train, do the operation, and it would either pass, fail, or error. And the state on the passenger could be mutated and he'd just get back on the train and go to the next stop. Unless you know, something else halted it. It was actually kind of fun because we had some complicated business uh, modeling that needed to be done, and it was very difficult to understand what the system was doing. And so we actually bolted in GraphViz and built a data visualization of the entire track uh, as you processed through. And if you failed any particular station and the the line halted, or you even jumped tracks and went to a different line, it was all visualized, uh, packaged right up with the data object that was passing through the whole uh, business process it's pretty slick but it's since been long abandoned i'm sure the uh, the dry libraries are a much more robust way to go about that these days but uh, it was a fun uh, exercise back in the day
3: so as far as readability when using dry validations dry types dry monads Do you think that it is more readable to read the code or is it a bit more obfuscated? Like, is it harder to read if you are unfamiliar with uh, the dry ecosystem and bringing someone in? Do you think that they're going to have a difficult time adopting it? Because there is quite a bit that is covered with the dry ecosystem.
2: Well, it's actually a pretty painful issue, I think. Uh, You know there are two sides to it the first one those gems make it easier to reason about the code like you they prevent you from doing silly things sometimes and it's what i like about those gems is i really like the tools that if i have to fight them to achieve th- something then i'm not doing it right and those are just those gems are one of the well they help me with that. So if I have to fight them, then I'm really not doing something right. But yeah, new people will be confused. And those ideas are kind of new to Ruby. I think a lot of them are new, like the type constructors, those are concepts. The concepts are like, are not, they come from Scala, they come from Java, they come from Haskell. And this is not what most of Ruby developers are familiar with. So, yeah, you have to teach them, you have to teach new people how to treat these, those gems, how to treat this code. And if we're talking about plain, re- some kind of readability, I'm not really sure about it because I've never seen Ruby code without a lot of JRB code, so I'm kind of familiar and it all looks natural, so yeah. Yeah, and that project I was talking about earlier, what
1: we found was it was difficult to model the business process kind of in that paradigm, that functional um, type paradigm, railway, the railway-oriented way. What we would do is kind of just glob a bunch of business logic together to achieve the thing and then kind of back out into the more formally modeled business process. Sometimes we couldn't get there. Like it was it was just too cumbersome trying to model it beforehand. So we would implement it and then kind of refactor it back out into a railway oriented type design. Once you model your code that way, you can actually have reasonable conversations with the business team because they can actually reason about what's happening. Like, like I've got this uh, business process with these you know, five stops along the way, and they can either pass or fail. And if they fail, this is what happens. And then your business team can actually get involved in modeling out your business processes with you, in theory.
4: So if someone had never worked on a project that was using these dry gems and acted a bit more functional, like say coming from your traditional Rails app, are they going to be completely lost? Is it a very different paradigm? Yeah, I
2: actually think so. When I quit my first job with extensive driver usage, I actually came to realize that most of the people don't use the dryer bee the way the creators do like people try to reinvent a lot of things that are already implemented in those gems and those gems are not really documented properly so everyone's gonna have a hard time doing this the community around those gems is pretty small so there's a couple of people who are familiar with that and I think it's important for those people to share their ideas. Like they have to write new articles, they have to write documentations and stuff like that. Are there any good open source projects that, other than the gems themselves, that actually show their usage that you're aware of? Uh, I think the best and the largest open source project is Hanami. I think they want to merge some of the gems into the Hanami namespace. But I'm not really sure about that. I know that they have some plans. And I think one of the most notable person that tries to show open source projects using Dryer B is uh, a guy called Anton Davidov. He's one of the core contributors to Hanami. And he actually has a lot of projects, libraries that use those features extensively. So, when you model out a business process, do you go pen to
1: paper to the whiteboard? Do you diagram how you're going to make it happen? What's
2: what's your workflow like as you model out a new business process? Well, it actually depends. In all of those, well, my domains are sometimes decently small, so we just come, sit around, and discuss what's going on and how those things work, and then I just walk to my computer, open my IDE, and I try to express everything using operations and types. And then it all works out. I I can add some specs to the code, and then then it starts working.
3: Do you think writing tests for the DryRB ecosystem is easy, or does the DryRB add complications to it?
2: I haven't really noticed any differences mainly because those concepts are pretty close to Ruby. And I think one of the, one of the hardest things was when you use dry monads and you have a result wrapped in a result monad, then it gets complicated when you want to extract your data because you, you have to know how to properly extract because you can not just go around and say, Hey. This is a result. I don't care if it's a result or a failure. Just give me the value. It doesn't work anymore. I mean, there are some workarounds, but those are ugly and you really have to know about them beforehand. And so I think that monads add some complexity. But other than that, no, I I haven't really noticed any complexity. And actually, if you use types and structs, It actually helps you to find errors because you naturally can't assign an invalid value to the structure. I mean, if you have a name which is required to be a string, you can't assign an array of strings. You can assign a number. And the tests will fail early, so the code won't get pushed to production. So that actually helps me write some tests because, well. I don't need to test anything accept the valid input
3: and that's one thing that i love about typed languages and you know introducing dryrb in this case is that you have to be almost more intentional to make mistakes you basically get rid of the undefined method for nil class uh but it's also one of the things that i hate about typed languages is that you have to be a lot more specific in what you were meaning instead of having something in more of a little gray limbo area, which is sometimes desirable in certain cases.
2: Yeah, that's actually one of the the things that I don't like about type languages. Well, some of those languages expect us to be more verbose and they want us to specify types. You know, that's one of the problems with, that's the way the Python and JavaScript went. Like they added annotations on the syntactic level I mean, JavaScript has flow and TypeScript, but still. And I'm actually happy that Ruby doesn't want to go this way. I mean, Ruby will not have type annotations, and I'm really happy. I actually enjoyed my time with Reason, which is a syntax for OCaml. I enjoyed it because it has a decent and static type system, but well, I almost never have to specify the types that I use. And I think that's one of the greatest things about Ruby and Ruby's type system. I can just specify them once. I can just build the data and I can just go on without ever thinking about the shape or I don't know anything.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's a lot easier to ignore types if you're wanting to just get something out there quick and you know what, if there is something where you have a certain kind of requirement, then throw a guard clause on there and you're, you know, call it a day because uh, that's going to catch a nil class or whatever. And you can handle it right there within that service object or function.
1: So dry RB types are checked at runtime, I would imagine, right? There's not like a build step or something. You, you run them through
2: to, to verify the, the accuracy of the code yeah that's just well, yeah, that's not going to happen, I think I mean any any static type of checking is never going to happen, I believe well, maybe if Stripe actually open sources their mm-hmm. type checker, maybe we can build something on top of that, but other but no, I don't think we'll ever have static typing with Drer B. Which I think static
1: types are still on the docket, aren't they, for Ruby three? But but not so much uh, in the traditional sense. I think Matt's his opinion is more one of the static type checking is great to facilitate your tooling, but the verbosity it brings, he I think he's very wary to bring that type of verbosity into the language itself.
0: Yeah, I think it was
1: optional.
4: I think that got closed, actually. I looked in that kind of recently I think that entire thread got shut down but yeah like Chuck was saying it was you could optionally use types
2: yeah Uh, I think last year at European Ruby conference he had a keynote where he said that he never wants to introduce type annotations but he wants to embrace static typing like like you know how JIT in 2.6 works it if we have a function that has predictable types, then we can actually optimize it. And I think it's one of the greatest ways to follow, because if we can move towards the path of inferring types instead of annotating them, and if we can improve the performance of the language by guessing types, then I think we'll, we're going to have a more reliable language. And That's going to be great. Uh, and that's actually one of those things that keeps me in Ruby. I want to see it happen and I want to contribute.
3: Yeah. You know, my stance is don't force me to use types if you're not going to give me a compiler. No, so. That's fair enough.
4: So now we have languages like Crystal who do offer this kind of this type checking. So if we have Crystal and Crystal is getting better, why stay in Ruby? Why not just use Crystal since it's very Ruby-like?
2: Well, really, I don't know, actually. I've never seen Crystal, and I think there's a lot of good languages, and I really have to consider this. But there's one thing I want to know about Crystal's type system. Does it have nil as a default value in each type? Because that's one of those things that I really don't like about statically typed languages. When you have a string, it's usually not just the strings that you have you also have a special value that you have to always consider. And, you know, languages like Rust, OCaml, uh, F-sharp, they have this notion of optional data type. And I think Java 8 has it too. So practically, you wrap your value in an optional, uh, and then you can work with it. And I wonder if Crystal has it, or does Crystal have nil?
4: Yeah, so looking at their front page right now, and I have, not, I have not a Crystal expert by any means, but it says all types are non-nillable in Crystal, and nillable variables are represented as a union between the type and nil. As a consequence, the compiler will automatically check for null references in compile time, helping prevent the dreadful billion-dollar mistake, which I'm not really sure what that is, but it does, look, it does look like it'll default to nil, I'm not sure.
2: Well, this looks promising. Actually, yeah, I think I like it. Uh, You know, there's always this problem with a lot of companies. Like my my current company wants to move away from Ruby because like here in Moscow, it's getting exponentially harder to find a good Ruby developer. Like Python is winning over here. I'm not sure about other parts of the world, but in Moscow, it's definitely just JavaScript and Ruby and Python and other languages. And I would love to embrace other languages, but, you know, we have to build awesome products and we need awesome people to help us. So that's
4: going to be the problem. In the US, at least, I don't know if it's a problem of finding good Ruby developers, but there is a problem of finding senior Ruby developers. Oh. So I don't want to say that the two are synonymous, but it's really hard to find senior developers here. And that's what a lot of companies are looking for.
2: Oh, yeah, I think we have a similar situation. We have a lot of uh, decent mid levels uh, Ruby on Rails developers, but none of them are senior. None of them have
0: enough experience to tackle something outside of Rails. So this is, I have lots to say on this, but <laughs> this is a topic that I'm intending to discuss on the DevRev this week. So you can go find it on YouTube or I'm getting it submitted to iTunes this week. So. You can go pick up all the stuff that I've said so far, but yeah, it's definitely an interesting problem being able to hire senior people versus you know being willing to train them or even knowing how to train them and how we do hiring and development. But yeah, it's it's a problem that people run into all over the place.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's isolated to Ruby
0: either. Nope, I have companies you know looking for them in, in JavaScript, in a lot of other areas, and yeah, it's and and they don't really know what they want.
3: Yeah, and what's gonna ultimately happen is that companies are then gonna start realizing like, oh, well, hey, we could just go overseas and outsource our code to this other country because they have senior Ruby developers, so they outsource it to somewhere else, you get the code back, and it seems to work for a few weeks, but then you finally find some seniors within your area, you hire them, bring them on board, only to realize that all that code that that outsourced company wrote was complete junk, and now you have a huge mess of cleanup. I have
4: literally seen this happen.
3: <laughs> yeah. So the point is, if you're looking for a senior developer to hire, hire someone who is not senior and train them. Bring them up. You know, teach them how you want them to be senior, and then you're going to get much better code produced in the long run in the way that you want it to be built.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, that's not necessarily easy either. Yeah, the industry
1: isn't really poised for that. Like, a company has to be playing the long game for that to
0: work. Yeah, like I said, lots of thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, it it seems like we're kind of off on a tangent, and uh, I know that some people have uh, time constraints. I just want to make sure that we've covered this. Is there anything else that we need to dive into here, or do we want to just wrap up and head into picks? Well, I don't know,
2: actually. There, there are lots of topics to discuss and, you know, it's going to take probably a week of constant talking just to cover everything. I'm
0: game. Let's go. Yay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Well, maybe we'll have you back and we'll dive into some of these other topics. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. But yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you have some picks for us?
3: Yeah, sure. So my server rack that I have in my basement, I have about five or six servers hanging on there. And I recently got another one. And the server rack was built out of wood studs. So I was fearing that the thousands of dollars of computer equipment I had on there on my home built rack was exceeding the weight capacity of wood. So I upgraded to a NavPoint 42U rack so it's actually made out of steel, so it's pretty sturdy. And so that's my pick. It's nothing fancy. It does not have all the bells and whistles. And for a 42U rack, I paid about 250 for it. So that's a very reasonable amount to spend for a server rack. So I'll pick that. And then with that, I got a couple of solid-state hard drives, the Samsung Evo series. Uh, one terabyte now costs about 150 bucks which is insanely cheaper than what it was just a year and a half ago. Nice. And for those wondering what I'm running on, the new rack, it is a Kubernetes cluster. So I'm playing around with Kubernetes and having some joy and fun with that. Nice.
0: Is that an ironic statement? <laughs> <laughs> Are you actually having fun with Kubernetes? <laughs> no comment. I think, I think it's low stress when it's a hobby. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Nate, do you have some picks for us? I do, and they're
1: all related to CodeFund. So as you guys know, that I'm working with Eric on, on CodeFund to support open source, and we have a, a wide publisher network that we want to grow. So I, this is kind of a call for publishers. If you have an open source project or a technical blog or anything like that, and you would like to make some money to help support your efforts in that, please reach out. Just go to CodeFund.app and uh, sign up. Also, we've had some interesting, like we're doing about 600,000 impressions, um, ad impressions uh, a day now, and that's led to some interesting scaling challenges. So some of the tools that I've been using to help get around that are the ones that I want to pick today. Scout APM has been awesome in terms of helping us track down where hotspots are and what needs to be optimized. It's been really fantastic. It's it's my go-to preferred APM tool uh, nowadays. Also had a a bug in the code over the weekend that caused a lot of back pressure on our queues. And uh, we didn't lose any data because we're funneling all that over to Sidekick and Redis, but we're using Redis Labs as our back end for that. And just wanted to give them a shout out because even though things stacked up and we had about 400,000 pending jobs to be done, we didn't lose any data during that time, even though we kind of hit our, our limit and we're over um, the amount of data we needed to store. So uh, very thankful to Redis Labs uh, to kind of protect things. And and we've got it fixed and got it rolling again. And then the other, this is kind of another technical gem that helped us was uh, an interesting one called Async Render. So if you've got a data heavy portion of your site that causes slow page loads, you can offload that to an async web request that just kind of happens in the background and, and you render it in Rails like a partial, like a standard partial. And got that wired up and deployed today and that's been really fantastic. So I'm sorry for all the uh, the, the technical picks today, but that's, that's what I got.
0: I'd love to dig into that too and just talk about how that works.
4: So good deal. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so... Since we were talking about Crystal a little bit, I thought of a tweet I saw from Paul who runs the Lucky framework. A couple days ago, he released uh, 0.13 and has since released a couple of minor um, bumps to that since. But uh, yeah, I want to pick Lucky. I think it's great. It's a great framework and I'm excited to see that continue to be developed on.
0: All right. Um, I'll throw out some picks as well. So this last week I was at CodeBeam, which is an Elixir and Erlang conference. And I really had a good time. Terrific folks, uh, terrific stuff. If you're into Elixir, we have a show called Elixir Mix. And you can go check that out. That's kind of how I wound up down there. We had Francesco Cesarini, who's been on this show before. He came on and talked to us about uh, scalability and stuff with Erlang. And then afterward, he's like, hey, do you want to come to the conference and be a track host for one of the tracks? And so, yeah, I kind of emceed one of the tracks, messed up the timing on a couple of talks. That was fun. But, uh, anyway, had a good time, met a lot of people and a lot of interesting and exciting stuff going on there. So I'm going to pick that. It was in San Francisco on Fisherman's Wharf. And that was also fun. I just had a good time. Like when I went for my morning run, I just ran down the bay. It was, it was awesome. It was also flat. It's like the only part of the, of San Francisco that's flat because <laughs> you're running uh perpendicular to the hills, I guess, uh, or parallel to the hills. I don't know how that was a lot of fun and just Anyway, I had a terrific time, so I'm going to pick that. This week, I'm going to PodFest, and so I'm going to pick that as well. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of people that I know there in the podcasting community and uh, you know, connecting and getting ideas there, so I'm going to pick that. Igor, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, it it can be anything, anything you're enjoying these days. So uh, if you've seen a movie you liked or a book you've read or if you've used a new library or tool or anything like that, yeah, pretty much anything goes. Well, there's this book by one of well you know this
2: language called scratch the language for kids well one, one of the authors of this language actually wrote a book on education i can't quite recall its name uh, especially since i'm reading it's just translation but i really urge everyone who wants to improve their learning skills to read it because it explains how it explains for that you need to learn and teach effectively. It's practic- it's practically about education of children and adults, and it's practically what I'm doing ev- every day. It's It actually explains a lot why I love to experiment with languages, why I like to go out and try new paradigms, and why I want some fancy stuff in my code. So, yeah, I'm going
0: to send a link to the book very cool all right if people want to find you online where do they go i have a website it's
2: www.morozov.is that's practically my full name and i'm usually on telegram or facebook but so i have all of my possible contacts online on the website i'm
0: gonna add a link all right sounds good well thanks for coming igor it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me here tonight. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we will catch you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.